Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. As John saw the vision of the seven lampstands, he discovered that these sources of light actually represented bodies of believers, churches. Jesus said that we're his church and we're to reflect his glory in the world around us. Pastor Phil explains now as we join him in Revelation chapter 1. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it says the word of God is living and powerful. That's the Greek word makaira. In Ephesians 6, where it talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that's makaira. You see, God uses his word in one of two ways. A makaira was again a precision instrument. And sometimes God will use his word in a very precise way to convict us, almost like a scalpel, to cut away from our life carnality and compromise, that kind of thing. So the word of God convicts those whose hearts are right with him, but it will condemn those who refuse to repent. The same word can bring healing or it can bring destruction, can it? It can bring conviction or it can bring condemnation. It all depends on the person and how they receive it. So we see here the sword that is proceeding from his mouth, no doubt again, the word of God. But in this capacity, it's a word of judgment, not conviction. We see it here in verse 16 of chapter 2. Talking to what apostate church, Jesus says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Ramphia. You imagine Jesus fighting with a church? It's an apostate church, a church that claims to represent him, but is not. And he says, look, if you don't repent, I am going to come against you. And I'm going to fight with you with the sword that comes out of the word of God. But in this capacity, it'd be a word of judgment. And again, in Revelation 19, just quickly turn there. When Jesus comes back, he's going to use that very sword to judge the world, which is his word. He's going to judge the world by his word. The same word, by the way, that spoke the universe into existence. The same word that holds everything together by the word of his power is going to judge the wicked. Verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here is Jesus coming back to the earth to establish his kingdom riding a white horse with all of us, the saints of God, riding white horses, coming back to the earth, the second coming, to establish the kingdom of God. And what happens? The Antichrist and his forces gather together to go to war against God. Read Psalm 2. He laughs about this. He's not scared at all. Oh, what am I going to do now? (laughs) Look at him. I see all the tanks and all the, you know, all the F-16s. What am I going to do? Then the beast was captured. (laughs) There's no fight. And with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence. 
and by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus is first of all going to judge his church in the sense of those who claim to be his but aren't the apostate church. If they don't repent, he will judge them. Judgment begins at the house of God, as we've already said. But then later on in the book, we see how his judgment then uh, extends to the whole world who have rejected him. Well, verse 16, the last part. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, that is a common response. That is the normal response of somebody who sees the Lord in the Old Testament. Or even an angel, right? I mean, Daniel sees an angel and falls on the ground like he was dead. I mean, that is the normal response when somebody sees the Lord of glory who radiates like the sun, they hit the ground. In contrast to some of these goofballs today who have claimed that they've had visions of God and they sit down with God and talk to him like you would talk to neighbor Bob over your backyard fence. I mean, come on. Everywhere I look in the, in the Bible, when somebody saw the Lord, man, they hit the deck. J. Vernon McGee, I like what he said. He said his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You can't even look at the sun. Do you think you, you'll be able to look at the creator who made the sun? The one who, who is the glorified Christ? How wonderful is he? I mean, man. John says, I saw his face radiating like the sun. Well, John had a little glimpse of that years earlier, didn't he? On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus began to radiate like the sun, he had a little preview of what he is now seeing in fullness. Jesus gave his Peter, James, and John a little preview of his second coming glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now John sees him actually coming in his glory. It's incredible. Verse 18, Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We've talked about that. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus has the keys to Hades and death. What is Hades? Hades is a place somewhere in the center of the earth where those people who die, their souls go into Hades, those unbelievers. Of course, in the Old Testament, it still is, by the way, divided into two compartments. There is a torment side, and then there is something called Abraham's bosom, where all the Old Testament saints were comforted. And between the two compartments, you had a vast chasm or a gulf like the Grand Canyon, so that those on the one side could not get to those on the other side. And, of course, those on the other side, the good side, would not want to get to where those other folks were. Well, why were they there? Because Jesus had not conquered death yet. Now, they were righteous. They had died in faith. But he had not conquered death yet on the cross and through his resurrection. And so they had to go into this place where they were held. It was a prison, really, but they were in paradise because they could not go to heaven because they had not been, uh, their sins had not been paid for yet. When Jesus died on the cross... 
he uh, before he rose and ascended back to his father, the Bible says he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Let me just say this. When a person died back then, their soul went into Hades, whether a believer, Abraham's bosom, an unbeliever, the torment site. Their body went into the grave. That was what death. Death in Hades is speaking of the soul and the body. Hades, the place where the soul went. Death just speaks of the grave, the place where the body was buried and decayed. When Jesus died, before he ascended back to his father, after he rose again, he first descended, it says in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 8 through 10. He first descended into Hades and set the captives free. He unlocked the prison doors, released the captives, and he led them on high. He took them to heaven. And now Paul says, when any believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So today, that one compartment, Abraham's bosom, is empty. The other side, though, is very much in operation. All unbelievers, when they die, their soul goes into that torment side, where they will remain until the great white throne judgment. We're going to read about it in Revelation 20 where Jesus resurrects all these unbelievers and they stand before him and are sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire, hell. He has the keys to death in Hades. He said in chapter 3, verse 7, I open and no one shuts and I shut and no one opens. He opens the door of death to those who have received him. He is going to resurrect us someday. But to those who have rejected him, they're going to be sentenced eternally to the lake of fire, a second death that he will lock them in. They will never escape. But he has the power of life and death. He conquered over death. And so all those who now have put their faith in him, we go to immediately to be with the Lord, our soul and our spirit. Our body, that goes back into the dust of the earth. At the time of the rapture, that is resurrected, glorified, and reunited with our soul and spirit and we are again a triune being as God created us originally to be. Well, verse 19, Jesus says to John, and here is the outline of the book of Revelation. We've already touched on this, but here is the outline. If you don't get this, you're going to have a hard time with this whole book. Here is the outline for the book. Write the things which you, what? Have seen. What is that? The vision in chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. That's why we've taken so much time with this, because it is the first major section of the book. The vision of Jesus, understanding his glory. So write the things which you have seen, the vision that John had just seen in verses 10 through 18. Next, write the things which are. Well, as John was writing these things, it's the church age. That's why he wrote the seven letters, Jesus dictated, I should say, seven letters of seven churches, which John wrote down. So write the things which are. That's speaking of the things of the church, chapters 2 and 3. We are in the church age, so we are still in this section technically. And then finally, write the things which will take place, metatauta, after these things. And of course, that is the prophetic revelation that unfolds before John's eyes in, verse, in the chapters 4 through uh, chapters 22. And we'll study those in, in detail as we get there. So that's the book. That's the outline of the book. Okay, write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things, chapters 4 through 22. Well, verse 20, 
the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, the pastors or elders, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Again, oil, burning lamps, oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, but burning, giving off light. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, verse 12? He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What exactly did Jesus mean when he said, I am the light of the world? In the scriptures, you probably already know this, but in the scriptures, light and darkness are used quite often as metaphors. Light is used in the scriptures to represent spiritual truth, holiness, moral purity, and obedience to God. Darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, moral impurity, and rebellion against God. It says in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 and verse 9, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. John says that the true light, Jesus Christ, invaded a world of darkness, a world of spiritual and moral evil. And the light came into this world of darkness so that men could have their way lit back to God. He came as a light whereby men and women who wanted to find their way back to God. Remember now, in the Garden of Eden, we had perfect fellowship with God, but through sin, man was driven from the Garden. But now Jesus came to the world to light the way back to God, to show us how we might have fellowship with God once again. And John says, and the darkness could not comprehend it. Actually, the Greek is, could not extinguish or overcome it. Light is always more powerful than darkness, isn't it? I mean, you could have a whole bunch of darkness. You could be in some gigantic warehouse and somebody lights a match somewhere in that dark warehouse, you're going to see it. Light is always more powerful than darkness. The lies and deceptions of the devil are never a match for the truth of God, which Jesus came to this world to bring. Jesus said in John 8, verse 31 and 32, speaking to his disciples, if you abide in my word, see, what is the light? Truth. The truth of God, oil burning lamps, oil, Holy Spirit, light, truth. Jesus came into the world to bring his truth, which can set men and women free from the lies and the hold of the devil, right? If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, truly. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Then later he looked at his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 14, you know the scripture, of course, where Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. 
Our good works are obedience to God. Loving people, you know. Representing God in this world the way Jesus did. He said, Father, I have glorified your name to the people of this world. That simply means he faithfully represented his Father in this world. We glorify God and we walk in obedience. We do the things he's told us. When we represent his character, love our enemies, you know, be unselfish, reach out to people. I mean, all the things that Jesus did, when we do that, we are, by our good works, showing the people of this world that God is real and we belong to him. We are the light of the world. I like what um, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. And boy, this really relates to the world we're living in. He said in verse 14, he said to believers now, of course, do all things without complaining and disputing. Boy, I wish we could just get that one down. We could just do everything we do for God without complaining, without disputing. What do you mean you're going to do that? I want to do it this way. You know, and arguing back and forth and complaining. He says, don't do that. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I want you to stand with me in heaven because you really gave your heart to Christ, Paul is saying. And you prove that you gave your heart to Christ and are a real Christian by the way you live in this world. Not that we all live perfectly, obviously, but are we shining as a light? I mean, some people claim to be Christians and their lives are just as dark as the people around them who don't claim to be Christians. I mean, that isn't proving to me anything as far as belonging to God. So here we are. God wants us to be lights. That's what we're called to be. We are in a very dark world. Uh, It's getting darker. Jesus said the closer we got to his return, the more the deception and darkness would grow. I'm telling you what, if even if a Christian shines just a little bit today, it's quite a contrast to the people in this world around us. But they need to see something different in us. It just grieves my heart when I hear people who are church leaders and the whole approach to evangelism is becoming like the world to reach the world. Let me tell you this. The dynamic of the church in reaching the lost has never been in trying to become like the world to reach the world. It's always in its differentness from the world. Why why would the world be drawn to us if we just give them what they've got? What is that? So the church tries to be like Hollywood because the world is drawn to Hollywood. We try to glitz and glamour it up. Folks, the church will never be able to compete with Hollywood in the area of glitz and glamour. And when the church tries, you know what it comes across? Okay, like a cheap, pathetic counterfeit. Cheap costume jewelry, comp- jewelry compared to something very expensive. Hollywood is good at what they do. God never told us to become like the world or reach the world. He said, you be a light in the darkness. You stand for truth. My Holy Spirit will reach hearts for Christ. You don't have to put on gimmicks or put on a big show or have all this stuff going on trying to be like the world because the world likes theater let's be like a theater you know the world likes entertainment let's give them entertainment 
Great, you'll fill a church like that. You'll have a church full of people. I'm not so sure it'll be a, a church full of believers. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Filling a, a building, filling up chairs in a building is no problem at all. If we advertise free beer and pizza, I could fill this place every Sunday. That is not the goal. The goal is to stand for truth, love the Lord, be the people of God that he's called us to be, worship our creator, love our Lord, obey what he has said, and let the Lord add to the church daily those being saved. That's how it works. We are to be lights. May God help us in these last days to stand up and shine because it's a dark environment out there. And I tell you what, there's a lot of people that want, they want to find the light. They know their life is a mess. They know things look pretty bad and they would love to know God if somebody would just stand up and be a real Christian and show them what it really means to be a child of God. Revelation chapter 2. Tonight in our study in the book of Revelation, we come to the second of three major sections in the book. Remember how that we have already pointed out that Jesus himself gave us the outline to this book in chapter 1, verse 19, where he told the Apostle John to write the things which you have seen. That would have been the vision of chapter 1, the vision that John saw of Jesus, and write the things which are. Of course, that would have been the things that pertain to the church. Uh, as John was writing this epistle, uh, the church age had been going for a little over six decades. And of course, it is still going. We are still in what is called the church age, which will come to an end at the time of the rapture. But uh, write the things which are, and then write the things which will take place after this, or the Greek is, after these things, after the things of the church. After the church is taken out of here, then chapters 4 through 22 will kick into gear. Now, when most people think of the book of Revelation, they in fact think of those chapters, chapters 4 through 22. Most of which, of course, deals with the prophetic judgments that God is going to bring upon this wicked Christ-rejecting world. And we kind of feel that's coming sooner than most people think. But... Except for chapters 21 and 22, those chapters really don't have anything to do with us. I mean, those are the chapters that most people think about when they talk about Revelation. But for Christians, they really don't affect us. In fact, chapters 2 and 3 are far more practical and meaningful for us who know the Lord, as is the bulk of the book, which contains all those you know cataclysmic judgments coming upon the earth that we won't even be here to see. We're going to be in heaven rejoicing at the marriage supper of the Lamb while God is pouring His wrath out on this world. There is no reason for us to be punished with the wicked. And in fact, God promises us He will not punish the righteous with the wicked. So before He pours out His judgments upon this world, we're out of here, folks. And that's the bulk of the book, chapters 4 through, we'll say, 20, that deal with these judgments. And so, really, chapters 2 and 3 are the most relevant, the most meaningful to us who are Christians. And that's why I want to take our time going through this, because this is such a rich section for us who are believers. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. 
And as we've already pointed out, why he chose these seven, when there were other churches in the area that were bigger and more important than these, well, he had a reason for it. The number seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. And it's used throughout the Bible, but it's really used in the book of Revelation. It's used uh, 54 times, obviously, but it's used a lot more than that, buried in the text. It's amazing how many times the, the number seven appears just in the book of Revelation alone. But it speaks of completeness. And we talk about seven churches. There's something the Lord is trying to communicate to us about the church. I think he's trying to give us a full or a complete look at the church. And he chose these seven in particular because they communicate some very important truths to us about the church in the church age. I think there's four applications that we can make from these seven churches. First of all, they had a local application. These were seven real churches that existed at that time. And these letters were addressed to them by the Lord Jesus himself as kind of a report card, if you will, to show each of them how they were doing in his sight. I wonder what our report card would look like. Calvary Chapel, Elk Grove. I'm hoping it'd be good. I think it would be. But then again, we always think our church is the best. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said,